And we start off the year with you know, goals, hopes, dreams, plans for what we'd like to be different this year, or things we'd like to accomplish, or things we'd like to experience, or maybe ways we want to improve, or we want to be different, like I don't want to be healthier, I want to eat healthier, or I want to exercise, or you know, get my cholesterol down, or whatever it is, we're like, you know, this is the year that I'm going to make this happen, and we want it to be different, life's going to be better, and we're going to be better, and all of our goals and plans and those desires are really aimed at uh, how we want life to be. Um, the, the life we were made for, that we want the good life, we want the blessed life. And so each year it feels like, okay, this is a, a refresh, a restart, a reboot on my chance to now make this year the, my best year ever, the year that I, I want it to be for my life to change. And we're all searching for life as it's meant to be. And we want more of those times we, where we just feel, this is what I was made for, you know, that excitement, that high energy of like, I don't know why, what comes to my mind when I say that is like, water skiing like you're water skiing and it's just like yes this is what I made for maybe you're at a movie you're at some sort of uh, event or a party or some sort of music or something like that you're like oh this is what I was made for this is these moments are what I live for and we want times where we look around and we just kind of lean back and say ah oh, this is the life you know there's those high energy times when we're like this is what I was made for and those times where you just sit back and it's like this is the life maybe with loved ones maybe at some cabin or, or lake house or you're at family Christmas, you're all just sitting around enjoying each other's presence, and you're like, ah, oh, this is what life is all about. So we're all after the good life, the blessed life. And this series that we're doing in the, for the next three weeks is called Learning to Love and Be Loved. And really what we're, the questions, we're answering three questions. Uh, what is a disciple? What's a disciple of Jesus? How do we make a disciple of Jesus? And how do you know if you've made a disciple of Jesus? Where, or you could direct it on yourself. Like, what does it mean for me to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean for me to become and grow as a disciple of Jesus? And how do I know that I am a disciple of Jesus and how, uh, whether he's really making a difference in my life? And how, I'm curious, you know, you don't have to answer this out loud, but a question for us is, how would you answer this? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And we could go around the room and everyone give their answer. Uh, but that our answer, how we define what a disciple of Jesus is, what a Christian is, a follower of Jesus, has a huge impact on our life. Because if you answer it one way, being a Christian or being a disciple of Jesus will feel like drudgery, something I have to do, like uh, this duty I need to perform. And it's almost like if you're at a bad job, uh, but you're like, you know, I just need to stick it out because at the end of this I get to retire. And so I'm going to stick out this bad job. I'm going to, you know, this is what I have to do. I have to do it. Stick it out, and then I get something good at the end. I get retirement. I'll get my pension or my 401k or whatever it is. And if we see the Christian life kind of like, you know, it's got to stick it out. You put in your time, and then at the end when you die, you get a good afterlife. You go to heaven. So just put in your time. You might not like it, but you got to do it. That's one way that we could be, if we define Christian life in one way, that's what it would feel like. But another way to define it would be to see what we're actually made for, is that Jesus is calling us into the life we were made for, and then it becomes the most thrilling, most exciting, the most satisfying thing you could do with your life is to follow Jesus. And Jesus' message, it might be surprising, that he talked a lot about the good life or the blessed life. Think about the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 where he said, blessed are these people, blessed are these people. And Jesus is constantly helping people see this is how you get in on the good life, or he often would say, 
the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? How do you be part of that life as it's meant to be, uh, the life you were made for? And so if we're asking, you know, what were we made for? Well, let's ask Jesus. And he essentially tells people, come, follow me into life as it's meant to be. And so this morning I'm, we're going to talk about what is a disciple. This is our first message. What is a disciple? And we're going to go through a couple passages pretty quickly. And the first one is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. If you're using one of the Black Bibles, it's page 835. But Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 are the very last verses of the Gospel according to Matthew. And Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. He's died on the cross. He's been resurrected from the dead at this point. And he says, meet me back in Galilee, where he was doing a lot of his ministry. And so his disciples go and he, they meet him there. And he gives what we call today the Great Commission. Your Bible might even have that label, the little title over it, the Great Commission. And it's because Jesus says to them, he says, uh, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Meaning there's no place outside of Jesus' jurisdiction. That there's no country, no nation, no spot on earth, no kingdom that can say, no, Jesus, you don't have authority here. Sorry, you don't have a say in what goes on here. No, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And then he says, therefore, he's, that's his first statement. Here's a statement of fact, all authority. Therefore, go into all nations. So there's no nation. It's not like this is just for Israel. So make disciples in Israel. No, all nations. Go to all nations and make disciples. And how do you make disciples? You baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And that's a way for people to be initiated to say yes. I'm saying yes to being a follower of Jesus. And that's the act by which we can do that publicly. Like, I'm joining Jesus. I'm being baptized into the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. And then he says, teaching those them to obey all that I've commanded you. And so you make a disciple by baptizing and teaching people to obey all that he's commanded. And so what is a disciple? You could say a disciple is someone who obeys all Jesus commanded. You could add in baptized, but someone who obeys all that Jesus commanded. That's what a disciple is. And then we need to ask, well, okay, well, what did Jesus command? I mean, you go through the Gospel according to Matthew, you're going to have a long list of commands. So is it that we should just write out, you know, <laughs> go through all the Gospels, figure out every single time Jesus commands something and write out a list? And it's like someone says, I'm interested in being a Christian, I'm interested in following Jesus. And we just say, well, this is what you do. Obey all these commands, hand it to them, you know, all those. That, which could be overwhelming, um, but we're supposed to obey them. Well, I'm, in Matthew 22... Verses 34 through 40, page 828, if you're using the Black Bibles. Uh, Jesus gives, well, what are the two greatest commands? Somebody comes up to him and says, Jesus, at this time they don't have the New Testament, they have the Old Testament. And somebody asks, what's the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? And Jesus says, well, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, with all your strength. Uh, you could add to it, love God above all else with everything you have. And then he adds, he says, there's a second one too, and it's like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. Both these commands come from the Old Testament. And then Jesus says all of that is written in there, all the, uh, the law, referring to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, you know, all the people that are writing after that. He says all of that is summed up in these two commands. If you want to just boil it down, he says they all, uh, the law and prophets hang on those. It's like put a nail in the wall that says love God above all else, put a nail in the wall that says Love others as yourself and take all the other commands and imagine they have a little string and you can hang each one of them on one of those two things. Or like if you're sorting out your garage or something like, here's junk, here's donation, here's stuff I'm keeping. And it's like if you had boxes and you're sorting through all the commands in the Old Testament, you could put them in one of these two boxes, love God and love others. It sums it all up. It sums up the commands to Israel, 
also sums up the commands to Adam and Eve, the first humans, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That what is God, he doesn't say these words, but Jesus saying what he said to them, you can sum up in these two commands. And so thus these commands sum up what God commands to all humanity, God's will and desire for everyone. And so what is a disciple? We said someone who obeys all Jesus commanded, but now we get a little more specific. Someone who loves God and loves others. Someone who loves God above all else and loves others as themselves. That's what a disciple is. We need to back up a little further even and ask, well, who is giving these commands? This is Jesus giving these commands, but what is he like? What's his history with these people? And you can go to the Gospel according to John, and you see Jesus telling them, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And then you wonder, okay, well, what did he command? And a little while later, he says, uh, here's the command I'm giving you. Basically sums up all of them. Love one another just as I have loved you. So you, what do you have first? Jesus has loved them. And the command he's given is love one another as I've loved you. They're first loved. You've experienced my love. Now I want you to love others as I've loved you. And this is what I want you to do. If you love me, you know, sparked by my love for you, now you will obey my commands. What's my command? Love other people as I've loved you. And so Jesus is giving these commands as someone who has already loved his disciples he's given it to. And the commands that Jesus is quoting, love God above all else, love others as yourself, are from the Old Testament, the people of Israel. And what has happened to them? Those commands are given to people who have been loved. We just saw this in our Exodus series in the fall, that they were brought out of slavery in Egypt, and we're told that God chose to set his love on them, that they're going to be his treasure possession. And so these commands <coughs> given to Israel originally were also given to people who have been loved. And then we could just say humanity in general. When Adam and Eve were created, uh, they are made in the image of God, the image and likeness of God, which means all of us are in the image and likeness of God. And if the two commands that Adam and Eve and all humans are supposed to obey are love God and love others, and that's what it means to be in the image of God and the likeness of God, well... If you're reflecting this God by loving other people, that means this God loves. He's loving. He loves us. And so these commands to love others are, are given to people who have first been loved. And it's very important to know that, that when God gives us a command to love others, that we've already been loved by him. God's commands reflect God's character, which means God does to us what he tells us to do, that before God gives us a command, he's already done it to us. And we see in 1 John 4, 10 through 11, we're told, well, we, we don't love God because you know, we didn't first love him, but he first loved us. And how did he do that? By sending his son Jesus to die for us. And so if he's loved us like this, then we should love other people. And so we're told there, we didn't love God first, but he loved us. And because he loved us, we responded with love to him. And then also, if he's loved us like this, you should lo- we should love others in that way too. And so what is a disciple? We said a disciple is someone who obeys all Jesus commanded. We get more specific and say a disciple is someone who loves God and loves others. But if we back up, we also should say a disciple is someone who is loved by God. A disciple is someone who is loved by Jesus. Because just as he's loved us, we're now supposed to love other people. Then we can ask, well, what what kind of love is this? What kind of love is Jesus giving us, is God giving us? And if we back up all the way before even creation, before anything here existed, and we, you know, that it's kind of dangerous to be like, well, none of us were there, so uh, why are we speculating about what happened? And we shouldn't really speculate. Um, but there are a number of verses in the Bible that say 
what was going on before everything existed. What was God doing? Was he just sitting around twiddling his thumbs, trying to figure out what to do? What was God doing before everything else existed? And one of the passages that tells us, um, well, here, I'm going to make two statements. So one is that we know God was loving God. That might seem a little weird. Like, was he looking in the mirror? Being like, God, you're looking so good today. You know, what does that mean for God to be loving God? Well, we know that God was not alone. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, we're told that the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything was created through the Word. And later we're told that the Word became flesh, and we're told that this is God's only Son. So the Word is Jesus, the Son of God, who was with God the Father at all times. So God the Father, and God the Son, God was not alone, and God the Holy Spirit. And then John 17, 24, we're told, Jesus says, uh, he wants people to know how he was loved before the creation of the world, loved by God before the creation of the world. And so before God created anything, the Father was loving the Son. And if we went into more verses, we'd see the Son was also loving the Father. And they were doing so through the spirit of love, the Holy Spirit that uh, links them, bonds them together. And so before anything was created, we know God was loving God, the Father was loving the Son, and God is love. We're told in 1 John 4, chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. Fundamental to what it means to be God is to be someone who gives and receives love. So we know God was loving God. We also know God was loving us. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, I'm going to read those verses. Uh, did I put a page? Yeah, page 976 for using the Black Bible. So Ephesians chapter 1. I'll start in verse 3, actually. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined, which just means choosing beforehand, us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the Beloved. And so before the creation of the world, God was also loving us, that in love, he chose us for adoption into his family, that in love, God was planning out, I'm going to save these people. And so before we even existed, God was loving us. Then we can ask, well, okay, well, what kind of love, though? What kind of love is this that God had for us? If we go just uh, one verse further from where I read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, in him, referring to in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so God was choosing to adopt us in love. And how is that going to come about? Through redemption by Jesus' blood, by Jesus dying in our place. And so, what? okay, we're getting a sense of what kind of love is this. But was that really what was in mind before? Was it like, okay, God created and then things got off course. And then as history went on, all of a sudden God's like, oh boy, well, how are we going to fix this? Jesus is going to have to die. You know, my son's going to have to die in these people's place. Well, that decision didn't happen within history. We know that it happened before creation. It even happened. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, tells there is names written before the foundation of the world uh, in the Lamb's book of life, referring to Jesus, the Lamb of God. When John uh, the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in the book of Revelation, we see, well, who's... On the throne, who are the angels, who are the saints, who are the people who have died that are part of God's people? Who are they worshiping? Well, there's a lamb looking as if it's been slain because Jesus died in our place, that the lamb is now the king. He's the lion and the lamb. And so we're told the lamb's book of life was written, 
the Lamb who was slain, all the names of those who would trust in him were already written before the foundation of the world. Then 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, where the readers there are being told, you've been ransomed, you've been brought, redeemed, you've been, the ransom price has been paid to bring you out of slavery, and it was by the blood of Christ. And we're told, like that of a lamb without blemish. And then it says, foreknown before the foundation of the world, but now made manifest, revealed in these last days. And so even before we were created, God was loving us with a self-giving, self-sacrificing, self-humbling love, a love that lays down his own life, that Jesus planned and chose the cross before anything came into existence. And so if we're asking the question, well, what were we made for? That's what this message is about. And there's this, this quote that I've been like wrestling with for like the past month. And it's by a man named Richard Loveless. He wrote a book called Dynamics of Spiritual Life, basically getting into like studying revivals throughout history and seeing, well how, well, how does God work to bring people to himself? Like there's these moments in history where you see people just flock to God. We just saw it this past year at Asbury um, where there's like this thing going on at, at, at this, uh, this school and people are coming to God. How does that come about? And uh, Richard Loveless wrote this book on like how did revivals work? What are the dynamics of spiritual life by which we, God works in us? And he has this quote in the book. He says this, There is something in the sacrificial view of Christ's death which speaks to needs deep within the human heart as nothing else does. There's something in the sacrificial view of Christ's death which speaks to needs deep within the human heart as nothing else does. And I've been asking, well, okay, we see that to be true. That when we hear about Jesus' death and God works in us to actually see that that was for me, that does something in us. It stirs us. It moves us. But I'm, I've been asking myself, why? What, how, why does it speak to needs? What, how does it speak to needs within the deep, deep within the human heart? What are those needs that uh, this, the view of Jesus' death, sacrificial view, dying in our place speaks to? And I was thinking, you know, there's a lot of us, I mean, lots of people get sick. We can deal with sicknesses our whole lives or for decades uh, things that don't go away chronic sicknesses we can have times of suffering in, in any way and if you go and tell start, start telling somebody here's what i'm going through and they don't really understand the depth of your problem if you're like you know i've been suffering with this issue in my body for this long or like i have this thing with my family it goes back 30 years this thing going on and if they don't understand the depth and the seriousness of your problem they will not offer a solution that can actually solve it. And you'll feel it. Somebody like doesn't take adequate time to listen to this thing you've been dealing with 20 years. In 10 minutes, they're like, well, have you tried this? And it's like, whoa, I didn't think of that. I didn't think about taking Advil the last 20 years. You know, whatever it is. I didn't think, I've thought of everything. I'm in this problem. I want to get out of it. I'm in pain. I'm suffering. I've thought about it for 20 years. Somebody listens to you for five minutes and thinks, oh, I have a solution for you. And if somebody does not understand your problem, what they're going to offer you are shallow, superficial, short-term solutions. And so think about you know going to the doctor, and maybe you're just like, I'm living with this sickness, and I feel it. And you go in, you tell the doctor what it is, and they're like, well, you know, let's check back in six weeks. You know, I'm going to give you a prescription for extra strength, whatever it is. And you're like, no, I'm like, I have this issue, or if you have uh, some sort of you know chronic disease or cancer or something like that, and you get prescribed like 
uh, we always drink Dimetap as a kid. I don't even know what it does. It tasted awesome though. But uh, <laughs> like here, take take this Dimetap once a day, and or like it knocks kids out. That's why. Yeah. I, that's why I was giving it so much. <laughs> okay, well I'm gonna remember that now because now yeah. I, I need something now. Uh, but it's you know. Oh well, that's disappointing. But. Uh, but it's like, if you feel like, I have this deep sickness, and somebody gives you a diagnosis and a treatment, you maybe it'll relieve some symptoms, but you're still going to feel sick. It's almost like I'm still dying. I'm just dying more comfortably. Someone doesn't understand the depth of our problem, they'll offer shallow, temporary solutions. And Jesus' death, like nothing else, diagnoses how bad off we are, the depth and severity and seriousness of our sickness, of our problem and at the same time offers a treatment that can actually cure it. And that's why it speaks to us, because it gets down to the root. Any other solution we try to deal with the human condition, it's going to be like, well, that kind of helped a bit. It was, you know, or it might be temporary, superficial, but doesn't get down. I still feel sick. I feel like something's wrong. And uh, Richard Lovelace goes on right after he says this. He says, the substitutionary atonement, which basically substitutionary means Jesus took our place, and then atonement means uh, took our place to do what? To die, to make atonement, to pay for our sins. The substitutionary atonement is the heart of the gospel. And it is so because it gives the answer to the problem of guilt, bondage, and alienation from God. Guilt, bondage, and alienation from God. And each of those diagnoses the problem from different angles, but they have something in common. They all have a gap. And so the first uh, is... Guilt. Guilt is a legal thing that when you are standing before a judge, you've fallen short of the law, fallen short of a standard. There's a gap. Here's the law, here's the standard. You've fallen short, and so you are guilty. The second one, they says bondage. And we would think of slavery. In that day, uh, slavery in, in the nation of Israel was something like, sure, you could make slaves of other nations or whatever, but a lot of slavery was a debt slavery that you had you had to go into bondage because either you lost you had a bad crop year or several bad crop years uh, or you made foolish decisions and now well if I I don't there's not a welfare system that was the welfare system that now I don't have the food the money to take care of myself and my family I need to go put myself into debt slavery with somebody else and I'm gonna work for them so that I will survive and what debt tells us bondage is telling us you're in the hole. There's a gap. Here, now I have this debt that they, here's what I owe, here's what I have, and now there's a gap. There's, I'm in the hole. And the last one, alienation, is a relational problem. That we have this alienation, this estrangement, this separation, this distance between us and God. That, and in all of these, we can feel the gap. Everybody can feel it. Whether we're able to name it or not, we can feel something is wrong. There's this gap, and everyone's looking for, how do I close that gap. How do I feel better about my life? I'm sensing it, and maybe I can't name it, but something's wrong. We start off the year, every year. It's gonna, this year's going to be that way. I'm going to improve this. I'm going to do this better. And we can feel this, this gap. And we've done wrong, and all of them, we've done wrong, and justice demands that a price be paid, whether it's legal, economic, or relational. And we know it in our conscience. And there's a theologian from centuries back, and he said, our hearts are restless until we find rest in you, God. Why are they restless? Well, if you look at brain science, every, all of our brains are asking multiple times every second, faster than conscious thought, am I safe? 
that our brains scan our environment. When you walked in here, your brain scanned this environment, looking not just for physical safety, but relational safety, especially that when, I, when you come into a room, it's like, do these people want me to be here? Do I belong? Am I loved? Am I wanted? Are people glad to see me? You walk into a room and everyone kind of looks at you like, what are, what are they doing here? Immediately, not safe. This is not a safe relational environment. And so our brains are always asking that. And basically we're asking, are people for me or against me? And if they're against me, I need to protect myself. I'm not safe. I'm going to be in fight or flight. But if they're for me, okay, I'm safe. I can let down my guard. I don't have to protect myself. I'm good here. And in God's presence, we're in God's presence all the time. And so if we feel that gap and we're trying to cover it up, we've done nothing about it, nothing is working, we're going to feel unsafe. Is God for me or against me? Well, he must be against me because I've got this legal problem. I've got this economic problem. I've got this relational problem. There's a gap there. There's a hole uh, of where I'm supposed to be and, I, and I'm not there. And so we'll feel insecure and we'll feel anxious. And not only will we feel something's wrong, we're going to feel something's missing. It's like, it's like there's something I'm supposed to have, but I can't get past this. And because I can't fill that gap myself, I'm missing something in my life. And we can feel there's a price that must be paid. And all of those are answered by Jesus' death in our pray, place. Our legal problem, that Jesus served our sentence for breaking the law, that he takes our place. What's my sentence? What's my penalty for breaking the law? Jesus steps in. And so now that gap, he's paying, and I no longer have it. Our economic problem, that he, we are in debt to God. We have this IOU that we've fallen short. Like we keep everything we do wrong. We have an IOU and we're getting further and further into debt. And Jesus comes and he gives up his riches to take on our debt so he can give us his riches that only he has. And our relational problem, that it's, if there's a, you know, you walk into a room, maybe family gatherings or wherever, and you're like, we, I have beef with that person. And you walk in and there's, you're going to feel there's a distance there. And you're going to be, maybe even avoid them, or you're going to be a little more guarded talking to them. And that relational problem, that distance that we have, that what we've done in our relationship with God, Jesus pays the price of our forgiveness, that he pays for our wrongs, so we don't have to. And this is why Jesus' sacrificial love for us speaks directly to the deep needs within the human heart. If you flip to Romans chapter 8, I'm going to read a little part of that. That's on page 944 if you're using the Black Bibles. Romans chapter 8, Paul has spent, a guy named Paul is writing this, he's spent seven chapters laying out, here's why everyone has a problem with God. It doesn't matter if you're Gentile, which is non-Jewish, or if you're Jewish. You all have a problem and you have no excuse that you all have this gap. He uses the words in Romans 3.23, all of us have fallen short. And he uses the relational terms, the economic terms, uh, the legal terms. He's like, We've all fallen short, we feel this gap. And Romans 8.1 starts off by saying, but there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That if you trusted in Jesus, if you're in Him, there's no legal condemnation for you. And then in, uh, verse, in chapter 8, verses 31 through 34, this is his like, big conclusion. Like I've just, He just laid out, here's why I all have this problem. Here's how it's only solved in Jesus Christ. And now this is like his conclusion, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this whole ch- this ending he has here is meant to, how it's supposed to function, what it's supposed to do for us, is to convince us that nothing can separate us from God's love. Jesus' death is meant to convince us that nothing can separate us from God's love. And we can ask, well, will there ever be a cost to loving us that God is unwilling to pay? What does it say here? Uh, in verse um, 32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? So he's saying, look, God, there's no price he's unwilling to pay to love you. There's no point where he's going to get in the relationship at, at some point and something's going to be revealed where he's like, whoa, I didn't sign up for that. That's a bit too costly to be in a relationship for you. No, he's already given the most precious thing. He's given himself, self-sacrificing, self-humbling, laying down his life. Is there any price too high? No. God's already paid the highest price. And God loves us, the kind of love that we're restless until we get, and the kind of love, why the sacrificial view of Jesus of Jesus speaks deep to the needs of our human heart because it's a no matter what love. We've talked about this several times over the past couple months, but it's God loves us no matter what. You might be like, really? No matter what? You know, no matter how bad I am, how unfaithful I am, how unloving I am, how many times I don't pray or read my Bible, how often I ignore you, God, how many times I run away, how often I trust in myself, how often I give my love and my hope to other things. No matter how high the IU stack, we might feel like, well, this is a bad week. (laughs) I have a lot of IOUs, God. I'm going to get back on track. And we think every time we do something wrong, like there's a little IOU, a little IOU. And if, if they get too high, God's going to be like, I'm done. I can't, I can't pay this cost anymore. But what Jesus' death is supposed to assure us of, convince us of, is every time we're like, the IOU is too great, God. And he just hands it to us and says, it's already stamped paid. It's done. It's taken care of. This doesn't come between us. And so how does this relieve our restlessness. First John chapter 4 says, perfect love casts out fear of rejection. We're safe. We don't have to be guarded with God. We don't have to put our walls up. We don't have to wear masks or pretend. There's no reason to protect ourselves so we can be ourselves. We're accepted by God. And our sickness we have is really a homesickness. That the sickness we feel deep inside that nothing else can cure except Jesus' death is a homesickness. And we'll talk a little more about that next week. And so what is following Jesus like? According to Jesus, it's like saying yes to a party invitation. That his favorite, I don't know if is the favorite, but one of his favorite images for what does it look like to join the kingdom of God, to say yes to him, is a party. And what makes a party fun and joyful. It's that people want you there and you want to be there. It's safe. You know, a wedding, a wedding is like all your loved ones are there and you're hanging out or um, whatever kind of party is. It's like, yes, I'm looking forward to that. I'm RSVPing, not just as a duty, but I want to be there. I want to see those people, be with those people because I also know they want me to be there, that they want to be with me like I want to be with them. And the kind of love Jesus wants to give us frees us and fills us. Jesus said he came to give life, 
give it to the full, abundant, overflowing, satisfying. And I think we should ask ourselves, do we really believe that? When I, uh, let's see if I can remember the lyrics. Um, I sing this, Hudson switches the playlist of what I'm singing <laughs> when you go to sleep. But one of the songs I've sung the most is one my mom sung to me. Um, and at the end it says, uh, oh shoot, let me think of this. Uh, should we get this, this, this? I'm going to talk, this happens every time I try to remember this song. I can't remember. There's one line where it says, uh, wishing for him the happiness that I've found. And every time I sing it, I'm like, God, am I, hap- am I happy? You know, uh, do you make me happy? When I sing those words, is he like, oh yeah, dad has found happiness and I can have that too. And asking ourselves, you know, do we believe that Jesus came to give abundant life and give it to the full? And this message is called Made to be Loved. We are made to be loved by God. And what we are made for is not first to do something. What was I made for? What, what was I made for? Oh, to love God, to love others, you know, be a good person and do all this. No, the primary thing, the first thing we are made for is to be loved, for something to be done to us, that we are made to be loved. That's the good life. Life is, a, is meant to be, the life we were made for. And being a disciple of Jesus means following him into how life's meant to be, loved by God. Well, it's like a party invitation. People can say no and miss out. This love can be received and it can be rejected. And we're going to talk next week about how we can receive it. But we can make this the most exciting year we've ever had by saying yes to Jesus' radical love for us. And you might, I'm just going to give you this question for you to, to reflect on, is what is the thing that you think would separate you from God's love? What's the thing that you think would separate you from God's love? Where would God call it quits? Where would he say, that's just too much? That's the limit. And what we see is that God loves us at our worst. (laughs) And he knows what our worst is, what it's going to be. And in reality, if you really knew how, how bad off you are, you'd be like overwhelmed, like melt our brain if we actually could see the depths of our heart. But God sees it. He loves us at our worst. In all this, you might say, well, okay, wait. Well, God's love and acceptance is not based on what I do, like he'll love me and accept me no matter what I do. And actually, if you start hearing that, if you start thinking that, and if other people are hearing you say that, you've actually probably finally said the gospel in as radical terms as it needs to be said. Because of Romans, this book we were just looking at, Romans, that's what people said to him, like, wait, are you saying we should just sin more so grace may abound, like God accepts us no matter what we do, and it was just grace, and it doesn't... It's not mad. If you tell people that, what motivation would they have for living good lives, for being moral, for following the rules? If you say God accepts you whether you follow the rules or not, everyone's just going to run around and do what they want. And, and Paul and the whole Bible says, no, 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 that's not how it works. Because if we're really going to become people who love God and love others deeply from the inside out, we first need to be loved by God. That's how that happens in us. Only when we receive God's love will we reflect love back to Him and out to others. Before we can learn to love, we must first learn to be loved. And so next week is going to focus on, well, how do we actually be loved by God? How, how to be loved? I just want to give you this image to close. I shared it maybe a month ago or a couple of weeks ago. That, uh, and I usually use this first message of the year or the first couple messages to kind of set a theme for the year, or like a growth theme, or like a vision theme, and ours for this year is um, becoming a campfire of God's love. 
that God's love is a fire poured into our hearts that is meant to be provide light and warmth to one another and to this world. And Jesus talked about people far from God very compassionately. And one of the ways he talks about people far from God is that they're lost. And it might be like, oh, we don't, maybe we don't like to use that term, but it's actually a very compassionate word because what does it feel like to be lost? You're aimless, a little scared all the time, you're just trying to survive. And if you know you're lost, you're hoping someone will find you. And we have this condition where we feel like something's wrong. There's like this gap. What do I do? I feel like I'm missing something. And we feel this, this lostness. And whether somebody can actually name that or not, that, that's beside the point. They're all going around trying to, I need to find that thing that will make me not feel lost. And Jesus says, actually, you need to be found by the one who made you. And so in a dark and cold world, or a campfire of God's love, where we invite the lost and lonely to pull up a chair, and warm themselves by the fire of God's love for them. Let's pray. Father, would you let us, would you teach us to receive your love for us? It's so radical that it's just hard for us to even grasp. But we can maybe not be able to explain it with words, but would you let us feel it in our hearts? Would you let us know it? Would you let us pour it out to one another and on those in our lives that don't know you? Son's name we pray. Amen.